All right, good morning, familia. For those of you who don't know me, know me my name is Hannibal. Um, I'm so glad that you are here. If you're visiting for the first time, please let us know. We would love to know you and serve you in any way we can. And we, today we continue um, going through the last week of Jesus before he goes to the cross. And if you have been here walking with us through this journey, you probably already noticed that the closer he gets to the cross, the more radical he is becoming. The more he's saying things that shakes people up and makes people uncomfortable. Actually, he get, the closer he gets to the cross, the more you're going to see that there's no one like Jesus, that he doesn't fit in our preconceptions, and that he comes to do something completely new. That there's no one like Jesus, that no one fits, um, he doesn't fit our preconceptions, and that he comes to do something completely new. And, and the text that we have today is no exception to that. And he's going to talk about three controversial things, and maybe not so controversial. We're going to talk about politics, truth, and law, right? So if you were already uncomfortable with the church, get ready because it's about to get even more uncomfortable. We're going to talk about Jesus and politics, Jesus and truth, and Jesus and law. So do me a favor. Can you please look at the person next to you and say, this is about to get uncomfortable. Go ahead, go ahead. All right, Jesus and politics. How many of you guys like politics? How many of you guys hate politics? All right, there's a little bit of everything for everyone this morning here. The context of the text, when this is happening, it happens when Jesus is at the temple, the Gospel of Mark says. So Matthew chapter 21 and chapter 22 is happening when Jesus is at the temple after he had overturned the tables, after he had confronted the religious leaders. So in the minds of the religious leaders, they need to do something because Jesus is having, causing problems. And not only the religious leaders are uncomfortable with Jesus, but people in positions of power are also uncomfortable with Jesus because of the things he's doing and the things he's saying. So look at what happens in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Notice that, notice that expression. They sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, this is super interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians did not get along. They didn't, they didn't like each other. It was almost, almost like if it was the Democrats and the Republicans. I said almost. But it's interesting, though, is that they come together to go against Jesus. Now, the, the Pharisees, obviously, they care about religion and theology and doctrine and things like that and morality. But the other group, they, don't, they care about religion, but not that much. Actually, we know that what they care about is politics and economy. That's what the name Herodians come from because they were following, followers of Herod. Their main concern was politics and government. So this is super interesting. The Herodians then are approaching Jesus. And the way they approach Jesus is very, very, very intriguing, at least to me. They say something to Jesus along the lines, and I'm paraphrasing. Jesus, let me ask you a question. You are a man of integrity, a man that know the way of God. I know that you, you are not influenced by anybody. That's how they approach him. But look at the question, verse 17. Tell us then, 
What is your opinion? Is it right to pay, to the, uh, pay the imperial ta tax to Caesar or not? Listen, church, that's a brilliant question. I guarantee you that these guys have been thinking about this question for hours and hours and hours. Because they know that this question is going to put Jesus in an awkward place. It's a lose-lose situation, at least in their head. And the answer is simple. So they are part of a Roman government. Jesus is at the temple. So you got the combination of government and religious lives together at one point. And they know that Jesus' answers is going to cause people to have issues with him. If Jesus says, yes, pay the taxes to the government, all his fellow Jews would say, hold on a second. The Roman government is oppressive. The Roman government is um, abusive. The Roman government is taking advantage of your people. How can you tell us to support this kind of government? Doesn't that sound like a political party we know? But if Jesus says, no, don't pay the taxes then he's going to be in another problem because then the government is going to have an issue with him because he's supposed to honor the government. Doesn't that sound like another political party? Can you guys see what he was trying to do, what they were trying to do? In their heads, this is a lose-lose situation. If he says yes here, he's going to lose some here, and if he says yes here, he's going to lose some people here. <laughs> Listen, the text doesn't tell you, but I can just imagine these guys. They're like, we got them. <laughs> High five. We got them. Which I find super interesting because it's almost like if I imagine Jesus saying like, you think you got me? You're going to mess with me? Jesus would never say that. I would say that. Jesus does something different, though. He calls them hypocrites. Now, listen. It doesn't matter if I say it in a nice way. If I call you a hypocrite, you will be offended. <laughs> You're such a hypocrite. <laughs> and you. And you. It doesn't matter. Jesus knows exactly the reason why he uses that is because he knows exactly what is the motivation of the heart. So he's going to give them the most brilliant question, uh, answer ever. Look at how he responds in verse 19. Show me the coin for, to pay the tax. And they gave him a denarius, which is a day's work. And he asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? Before moving on, you have to know why that is so important. See, we know because of history, because there's plenty of evidence of this, that that coin had two inscriptions on each side. One inscription on each side. And one of the faces of the coin, you had um, the image of, of Caesar with an inscription that says, Son of the Divine Augustus. Meaning that on one side of the coin says, This is God. 
And on the other side of the coin, there was an image of a woman that was probably the emperor's wife, and he had an inscription that says, high priest. Why is that significant? Because with one coin, the Roman government was telling everybody that there was only one God and one priest, and that was Caesar. Isn't that a crazy statement? So Jesus asked for the coin and says, Call them, let, me have, let me have the coin. Whose image is in it? And they say, well, that's Caesar. And look at how he responds. Verse 21. Then, go, then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Are you like, What? Look at how he's disarming their arguments. Well, how many hours they spend thinking about how they're going to treat Jesus. Jesus destroys the argument in two seconds. Look at what Jesus is saying with the first part of the sentence. Let me have the coin. Caesar's image. Caesar's money. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Jesus says, I have no problems with the government. That money belongs to the government. Government, give it to him. I think that, this, that the government is important, Jesus would say. I don't think that you should avoid the government. If the government wants to tra- charge you taxes, go ahead and pay the taxes. He's saying the same thing that, Peter, uh, that Paul later on would say. See, in 1 Timothy, Paul says that we ought to pray for the people in the government. Jesus doesn't have any problems with the government. Titus chapter 3 says that we should submit to the authorities God has placed there as long as they don't ask us to compromise biblical convictions. Jesus has no problems with the government. First Peter says the same thing. Submit to human institutions for the Lord's sake, meaning that our obedience to the government also reflects something about the character and nature of God. Jesus has no issues with honoring the government. No issues. But Jesus doesn't stop there. See, I guarantee you that there's at least one person here that is thinking, man, finally, Hannibal says something worth listening to. (laughs) But Jesus doesn't stop there. And I think that many Christians forget that. This is what he says. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Pay whatever, honor whatever. And give and give to God what is God's. And I'm going to make it super simple and clear just to make you uncomfortable. Give to the government your taxes. But don't give it your heart. Give the government your taxes. But don't treat politics like if it was your God and your priest. Honor the government. But don't put your ultimate trust in a government. Give the government your taxes. But do not give it your heart. So if you brag more about your political parties, there is an issue in your heart. So I'm going to make it plain. Elections is around the corner. And I'm already starting to get nervous about it. Because I'm going to get emails and letters 
and people within the church will start to have problems with each other. Why? Because there is this tendency to confuse politics with the gospel. And to think that our God and priest is the government, not our God and priest. Because there's this tendency to have this ultimate alliance to our political party and not the God of the Bible. No political party can fully represent God well. Why? Because all political parties are created by human beings, sinful human beings. Is that clear enough? There you go. Pray for the government. Vote. Support whatever you want to support. But do not dare to confuse the gospel with politics. Don't treat the government like if it was Caesar, God, priest. That only is reserved for our God of gods and the priest of priests. Can you see why Jesus is like no other? Can you see why Jesus doesn't fit any of our preconceptions? And why is it that Jesus comes to create everything completely new? That's Jesus and politics. It gets better. Because now he's going to talk about Jesus and truth. Now, don't think that I'm going fast. Don't worry. We're going to spend my whole time here. So Jesus is having these conversations with the, with the Pharisees and the Herodians, right? And because it didn't work for them, there's another group that shows up, which is the Sadducees. And these people really don't care about politics or government or any of that stuff. They care more about theology and truth. But in a sense, they're very similar to the first group because they also have preconceptions and they also struggle with the way they see Jesus and view Jesus. So look at what it says in verse 23. The same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Now, pause there for a second because you have to understand who these people were. I already told you that they were religious people. But they were experts in the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch. They were experts. They knew everything that they were supposed to know about the first five books of the Bible. And in their, in their interpretation of the five, five, first five books of the Bible, they couldn't understand why people believed in the resurrection. Because according to them, the first five books of the Bible did not talk about the resurrection. So they're about to ask Jesus a question. But the motive of their heart is not because they want to understand the resurrection. It's because, and I need you to remember, remember this, they have already made up their mind that the first, full, first five books of the Bible do not talk about the resurrection. So they're not seeking for understanding. They just want to trick Jesus. And they are about to quote um, a law that Moses used in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Now, before going into that, I need you to keep something in mind. When, one of the differences between modern times and biblical times, or one of the differences between uh, modern times and traditional cultures, is that in modern times, we always put the individual before the community. Is my happiness, my joy, what I want, what I desire, this is the I world. 
on the other hand, in traditional cultures, always, always, you put the community before the individual. No, it's just the narrative. You never make a decision just for yourself. You are always thinking about all the people, all the people that will be affected by my decision. So what we are about to see comes within the context of a traditional culture in which they understand that my responsibility is not just for me, myself, and I, but my responsibility is for my family, my community. Amen? So... They say this in verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Stop there for a second. I don't know if that you think it's awkward, but I do think it's awkward. <laughs> the law says... Moses said that if I'm married with my wife, Heidi, and I die without children, my brother's responsibility is to marry Heidi, to give her children. The first person to complain will be Heidi. <laughs> but remember, this is not about the individual. This is about the community. So Heidi, in that time and in that context, would have complained. Yeah, I do need to have children, per se. You'll see why in a second. And you have to remember that also being married was one of the ways in how men protected and provided for women. So there are three principles at stake here. The wife needs to be protected. The wife needs to have someone to provide for her. And the name of the brother needs to continue. Why? Because this is a community thing. See, this is one of the differences between marriages back in those days and these days. All today is about romanticism and being compatible, which I don't know what that means. <laughs> but in those days, it was about, hey, this is about us. This is a community. It's about having children. It's for the glory of God. Multiply, says Jesus. So, the Sadducees have been thinking about this for a while as well. How do we get Jesus? How are we going to make this happen? So, they remembered that law. And if you read the text, you notice that this is their, their argument. I die. My brother marries my wife. But then my brother dies. So then our other brother, which I don't have, but my other brother shows up and marries Heidi. And that guy also dies. <laughs> and he's like that with brother four and five and six and seven. It's almost like a Disney story. <laughs> right? It's almost like if it's Snow White, Mary's dopey. <laughs> and dopey dies. So grumpy comes in. And grumpy dies. And Sneezy comes in, and Sneezy dies. And Bashful comes in, and Bashful dies. And Happy comes in, and Happy dies. And finally, the last brother sleepy, but the guy fell asleep while he was driving. He got into an accident, so now Heidi has no husband. So the question that came to mind is like, what is wrong with that family, man? 
What is Snow White giving them? <laughs> now you have to remember that this is a made up story. Because their plan was just to trap Jesus. So they asked this question in verse 28. Now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven? Since all of them were married to her. That's a great question. They're using something found in the Bible to go against the God of the Bible. Don't you think that's brilliant? But Jesus is more brilliant than them. Because sin is creative, but not like our God. So look at how he responds in verse 29. You are in error because... There's two mistakes you're making. Not only you do not know the scriptures, even though you think you know the scriptures, but you don't know either the power of God. So he's going to fight theology with theology. So look at the first thing. He says, you think you know the Bible? I'm going to show you that you don't know your Bible, even though you think you know your Bible. Verse 30. At the resurrection... People will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. He's saying, I don't know what Bible you're reading. But the Bible we have, the first five books of the Bible, says that once we die and resurrect in heaven, there's not going to be married people. There's not going to be a snow white and the seven dwarfs. It's just going to be a snow white and Jesus. That's it. We will be like angels. You know why is that important for us to know? Because if you're married, make sure you enjoy your marriage here because that's all you get. <laughs> For some people will be like, oh, praise God, this is... <laughs> you have issues. You have issues. Now, Jesus is confronting them in a very theological way. These guys thought that they got him. They thought that they had figured out how easy they can take him down, but because Jesus is God, he says, you thought you knew the truth, but you don't know it, because my truth is the truth. And then there's a second argument he makes when he talks about the power of God. Because they claim to believe in God. But for the second part of the argument, which is the power of God, look at what he says in verse 32. I am the God of Abraham. He's quoting Exodus chapter 3. He quotes, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And if in, in those times and in that context for those guys, that will be the most famous verse ever. It'll be, it'll be something equivalent to John chapter 3, 3, 16 for us. Everyone knew that verse. And if you know anything about the context there, this is what God says to Moses in the burning bush before he goes into Egypt. And the gist of it is this. God there says that he's a covenant God. 
that he commits to his people and stays with his people forever. Stays with his people when people are alive. And stays with the people when people die. And will stay with his people when people resurrect. That's why the verse is in the present. Did you guys notice? He's talking to Moses and all of those guys already died. The implication here is that they had already resurrected somehow, per se, or will resurrect later on. So that's why he talks about God, uh, a covenant God in the present. Now, this is the crazy thing about these Sadducees. That they knew the Bible. They knew the Bible. They knew the quote-unquote truth. So how come they couldn't see that? How come they missed these two truths that were so clear in the scripture? And this is what we can learn from these guys. It is possible to think that we know the truth, but to miss it because we really don't want to see the truth. It is possible to think that we love God and what he says. When in our hearts, we have already made a decision that what God says is not true. You want me to prove it to you? Think about those things that God demands of you that you struggle with. And if you struggle with those things, probably is because you cannot believe that that is true. And you make a decision not to believe so you can believe. That's the nature of faith. You choose to believe in order for you to understand. We don't just believe because we understand. We choose to believe in order to see. We choose to believe in order to understand. So whatever God says, if you struggle with it, you have to ask the question, Am I choosing not to believe before I can understand? How many of you guys like Indiana Jones? There's a new movie coming up. Did you guys know that? But the sermon is not about that. In one of the movies of Indiana Jones, I'm never going to forget. This is years ago when I was like, I don't know, five? Uh, and there's a scene in which Indiana Jones needs to go through this thing, and there's like a chasm. There's a gap between here and there. And uh, there's a sign on the other side of the thing that says, uh, step out in faith or something of that sort. So he's looking down, and he sees the hole, and he, he doesn't see any path. He doesn't see anything. But the thing says, step out in faith, something of that sort. So this is what happens in this story. He decides... To trust the sign. So he does this. And when he does it, he actually lands in a path that looked exactly the same way as the rest of the hole. So you couldn't see it. It's only when he goes like this that you can see the path and the side that looked exactly the same way as the hole. And this was the lesson there. Unless you step out in faith, you won't be able to see it. Unless you trust to believe, you will not understand. Unless you put the condition to understand first, you will never be able to accept God's truth as true. 
And I think that a lot of us struggle with that. And Jesus says, there's only one person that defines what is true. And it's not you, and it's not your friends, and it's not your culture, and it's not your ethnicity, and it's not your traditions, and it's not your experience, and it's not the people you love, and it's not your government. The only person that defines what is true or what is truth is God. Because it is possible for you to see it and not see it. That's a dangerous place to be, you know. See, Jesus is above politics. And Jesus is the king of truth. That's why there's no one like him. That's why he doesn't fit in our preconceptions. That's why he comes to create something completely new. That's why Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So, politics, truth, and it gets better. Law. Jesus and law. So this is round three. Comes the first group, boom, 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 they lose. Comes the second group, boom, 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 they lose. And the Pharisees that are slow to learn, they decided to come back. So look at what happened in verse 34. The Pharisees got together, 35, one of them, an expert of the law, someone that understands the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, in verse 36, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, I find that question amazing because he didn't say, notice the phrase, what is the greatest commandment in the law? So, the Pharisees had the, the Ten Commandments that we all have. And if you guys remember, the Ten Commandments is divided into two sections. The first four has to do with our relationship with God. And the second six has to do with our relationship with one another. Right? So we got the Ten Commandments. But to the Pharisees, apparently, people needed to understand what those Ten Commandments were and how you apply those to real life. So they wrote another 613 commandments in addition to the Ten Commandments. Who does that? <laughs> so when they asked Jesus the question, which is the greatest of all these commandments? They're thinking, this is how we're going to get them. It's almost like if they're coming uh, back wounded from the first round. <laughs> I'm going to get you now. <laughs> That's kind of the idea. And this is the problem, though. Not the problem is that they know that human beings, we all have preferences. Everyone in this room has preferences. There are some laws that we prefer more than others. And there are some sins that we don't like more than others. They know that. 
They know that if Jesus elevates one law, somebody's going to say, hold on a second. I don't agree with that. I think that my law, the one that I really like, that is the greatest law. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that part of the reason why we love some of the stuff that God says? And some of the stuff is like, I don't want to talk about it. Isn't that the reason why there are some sins that we truly, truly hate and others is like, eh, it's all right. Sam O'Berry, which is a pastor, a theologian in Nashville, he says this. The church, Christians, tend to elevate the sins of the minority and excuse the sins of the majority. I think that's true. I think that we boast a lot about the sins that we don't like and we excuse things like greed, abusive power, domestic violence, and pornography. Let me ask you a question. Why do you think that the Pharisees knew that that's how people function? Because they function that way. They did have categories in their head. Oh, these are the laws. And these are the sins. You want me to prove it to you? I've used this before. But you guys remember when they catch this woman in adultery? And they bring this woman to Jesus? And they said, the law of Moses says that if you get caught in adultery, you should stone this person to death? You know what's interesting about that event? That the law said of Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, if you're reading it with us, the law says that if you get caught in adultery in the Old Testament, you should get stoned to death. Both parties involved. Not just the girl. So what happened to the Pharisees? They thought that it was okay for him to be an adulteress, but not for her. That's how you start making laws in your head that does not reflect what the Bible says. This is the way he's confronting them. Where's the guy? And not only that, but he says, if you are free or sin, throw the first stone. What does the Bible say? That starting with the oldest, that you started to live the sin. You know why? Because the older you are, the more sins you have. Jesus says, you actually think that her sin is worse than your sin? That's a crazy statement. This is the reason why they asked this question to Jesus. Because that's how they saw the law and sin. This is the reason why you and I have categories. This is the reason why we elevate some laws and undermine others, and why we elevate some sins, and we undermine others. But Jesus is not going to stop there. He's about to correct that problem. Remember, there's no one like Jesus, and he doesn't fit our preconceptions. And he comes to establish something completely new. Look at how he responds in verses 37 and 39, or 37 through 39. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second in verse 39 is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. The word like there means similar or like one mind or in agreement. This is what Jesus is saying with this answer. And I need you to remember these three principles. We don't get to create categories of law or sin. Because all laws are God's laws. And all sins are an offense against his holiness and his goodness. Therefore, stop making categories. Two. Don't ever think that you can love God and not love others. Or that you think that you can love others without loving God. See, it doesn't make any sense to me. Especially when Christians hate each other or non-Christians. How do you hate a brother or a sister that is created in the image of God if you supposedly love that God and vice versa? How can I claim to love God when I cannot love anybody else? Don't create categories in your head. Don't think that you can separate the love of God from others and others to God. But at the end, you have to understand the purpose of the law. Did you notice that the one word that is repeated in all these commandments is the word love? That is the purpose of the law. The only reason God asks things of us is because he wants us to love him more and love other people more. And this goes back to what we talk about in communion. Because love is the only thing that changes people's hearts. It's the only way that you get to grow and change in your relationship with Jesus is by loving him more and more and more. The only way you get to love other people is by loving people more and more and more. Let me put it this way. It is because God loved us first in Jesus that we get to love him in exchange and love others in exchange. And if love is the common denominator, then that is also the only way we get to truly honor the government without making it our God. Because we honor the government because we love God and because we want the best for others. But we never treat the government as God or priest because we already have a God and a priest. The priest that is also a lamb, the one that went to the cross to die in our place. See, it is because we love, God loved us first in Jesus Christ that we get to love him and love others. And it is because we have that that we actually understand that we need the truth. Because the truth is what helps us love him and love others better. And why do we do that? Because we already have a truthful God and priest that knows how to love us well. See, it is because God loved us first in Jesus that we get to love him and love others. Because it is only when we love God, listen, listen up church, it is only when we love God well and love others well that we learn to love what he loves and hate what he hates. This is also why you need his truth. 
This is why you don't get to define your own truth. You couldn't possibly love him well and love others well. And why wouldn't you do that if he loved you, if he loved you well? See, Jesus submitted to the government. That's why he went to the cross. See, Jesus believed in the truth. And that's why he went to the cross. And see, Jesus loved God the Father and loved you well. And this is why he went to the cross. Do likewise. Love him and love others. Amen? Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we don't have to guess what is it that you want from us or for us. I'm grateful, Lord, that we, have, we can have this understanding that everything that you demand of us or want from us is because it's the best thing for us, the best thing for our relationship with you, and the best thing for our relationship with others. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, that by the power of your Spirit, you help us to accept the truths of the Bible as what they are. The truths of the Bible. And as we love you and love others and we submit to your truth. Help us to put our political alliances where they're supposed to be. In which we see them as important. But we do not treat them as God or priest. Our ultimate alliance is through you and everything else becomes secondary and we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the churches